ESG involves more control and influence. So what are you doing about the distribution of your product? What are you doing about how your product is disposed of? How are you managing your supply chain? The whole point of having suppliers is you don't want to control that. Well, now you're expected to have controls over something you don't control. That's kind of a challenge. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode, and we're recording this. Monday, October 24th. So, of course, have to say the Astros are back in the World Series. Go Astros. So I'm not quite sure how that you feel about that, Doug, but I'm a native Houstonian, so it's a big deal to me. I am thrilled to have Doug Heilman on the podcast. Doug, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. It's a privilege, Tom. You do some really good stuff. I feel like I'm in rarefied company. Well, we'll take that to the World Series. How about that? Could you tell yeah. us about your professional background, Doug? I am an undergraduate chemical engineer, began my work at a chemical plant in the late 1970s, just when EPA and OSHA were hitting with regulations on vinyl chloride. So I jumped into the world of ESG compliance literally right out of college. Interestingly enough, I got that job because it involved a lot of writing and reports, and all the real engineers wanted to work with pumps, and I didn't have anything else to do. So they said, here, do this EPA stuff, and I've been doing it ever since. I moved to corporate not long thereafter, just in time for Superfund to hit and started working on deals and environmental auditing and health and safety auditing and transactions. I did management consulting for a decade or more. I joined PricewaterhouseCoopers in 2002, one month, and Sarbanes-Oxley was passed the next. So those were interesting times. I've had my own consultancy now for 14 years, active in the auditing field and profession, and I had a three-year interval when I was invited to join the Volkswagen Monitor team. Spent a lot of time in Germany working with teams of attorneys and forensic accountants on behalf of the Department of Justice. So it's been a lot of different things to make up that and picked up an MBA along the way. Doug, you're the second person I've interviewed for this podcast series that has been in the environmental arena as long as you have. Mm -hmm. One other colleague who started out similar to your background in, in engineering. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoy and appreciate having someone like yourself who's seen literally the, the breadth and scope really mm -hmm. of the environmental, the legal part of the environmental mm -hmm. movement and the compliance with that. You've been in the environmental field probably about as long as we've had an environmental field. <laughs> How would you, if you could assess the professional development of the field over your tenure, how would you characterize it? You know, I would say it's gotten a lot more complex. I think that's for a number of reasons that folks have come to appreciate that it's not just simply a rule. I liken it to how quality has evolved. There was a time when banging out dents at the end of the assembly line is how Detroit looked at quality. And they realized it really has to be designed in from the get-go. In a similar way, I would say that some of the early Laws and regulations were about cleaning up wastewater and disposing of waste, and it's evolved to considering the design of products, and now even in products at the end of their life and after their life, circular economy, 
ecosystems, biodiversity, and realizing that the environment really touches everything. So the regulatory environment has expanded to consider that. Another thing I've seen change, Tom, is the fact that stakeholders are making their own views known and imposing requirements. I began to see that in the 1980s in purchase and sale agreements and collaborations with vendors, things going into supply chain contracts, environmental being embedded into a code of conduct. And many of the things we see today, notably on climate change, are finding their way into companies through customer requirements and contracts. Plastic packaging, recyclable packaging, if you're not in conformance with the expectations of some retailers, then you don't get end cap space and maybe you're not on their shelf. So you can't just look in the Federal Register anymore here in the U.S. for your compliance requirements. You really have to scan the landscape of all the parties you do business with and see what their expectations are and catalog those binding obligations. So environmental really touches everything. And the compliance requirements have been imposed by all these parties to suit their own needs. I was particularly intrigued by your use of the term stakeholder. You didn't say shareholders. You didn't say investors. You didn't say customers. You didn't say localities where you may be operating. You used as, in my mind, as broad a term as possible. And then you went on to describe some of the various stakeholders. So you really see all of those in play in the environmental arena or space for an individual company today? Absolutely. We're at a moment now where the investors are really driving the bus with the reporting standards and developments for the International Sustainability Standards Board, the part of IFRS that has taken over SASB and Value Reporting Foundation. We've seen that investors are driving the bus when the SEC published the climate disclosure rule, um, the proposed climate disclosure rule. There are now some requirements for the SEC for human capital. And the investors are important stakeholder group, but they're not the only stakeholder group. And furthermore, they're not a uniform stakeholder group. I think SASB got it right talking about the common investor adopting that Definition of materiality from the U.S. Supreme Court, where the common investor is interested in how a company manages any or all of its risks that can affect financial performance. Can the company continue to make money? There are a whole range of other impact investors that have more specific interests, renewable energy, gender diversity, commitment to circular economy, biodiversity, don't want my money going to for-profit prisons in a mutual fund. So they may go beyond the typical common investor, but nonetheless, each one of these stakeholders has their own particular interest, valid interest, and they all expect data and information. Doug, is this a discussion that you were able to have with not simply those in the C-suite, but boards of directors and do they understand their different roles in this type of program? I think they're coming along. Everybody's pointing the board and say so you have to take a leadership role. And there are groups now providing training to boards. And I've read expertise in this is in short supply, mostly around the climate. So the boards are really kind of all over the place. I'm not sure that they appreciate the breadth of the topics or all the places and organizations where this touches. The boards are in a supervisory role. So I think the boards are coming along in climate in terms of getting uh, some perspective on risks 
and getting some competency or getting some external resources. The senior management needs to come along as well, as does internal audit and all the folks involved in governance. It's my observation that the groups leading various aspects of ESG are widely distributed around a company. They're in HR, they're in environmental, they're in operations, real estate, purchasing, sales, IT, name it. They have some kind of leadership role in ESG. And I think we're still in a process where companies are maturing to get those coordinated. So they're all pretty much rowing in the same direction. That takes time. It takes some thought. It takes some leadership. And I think it takes some support from people who know how to translate from one group to the other so they can understand what the organization objectives are and how all these topics affect their company. So let me pick up on that last point, because I see ESG as a business process. Mm -hmm. And I see the power of ESG is what you just articulated, that there are many disparate and different groups in a corporate organization that may have either responsibility or even a touch point, the B and the S and the G. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But previously, these were disparate. And whether you call them siloed, whether you call them disparate, whether you call them different corporate functions, there really was no holistic oversight around this from a business process. I wanted to see, would you say that's a fair assessment or or would you see things a little bit differently? No, I think that's spot on. So let me turn to, first of all, I have to ask this because I'm a lawyer by professional training. And so I have had to learn from people like you over the years. I think I had my first Superfund case in uh, 1989. And although I'm the son of an engineering professor, I'm not an engineer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I spent many hours sitting with folks like you trying to learn about various topics that would Mm -hmm. go into a Superfund lawsuit, whether it was insurance coverage or actual wastewater contamination. So I wanted to maybe start with that. You see the non environmental professionals such as legal, such as internal audit and other corporate functions are really beginning to understand some of the requirements and risks and risk management strategies around the E in ESG? I guess short answer is I see them starting to. There's still a long way to go. One of the things that I see, Tom, I'll just pick up on a few topics for either product conformity or carbon is getting everybody's attention. Human rights is getting everybody's attention. I maintain there are three attributes of this ESG reporting that differ from financial reporting, maybe a lot of compliance. And one one of them is reporting is really the tug. It's really a pull. All the stakeholders want reporting. For things, if you think about it, like a business objective, we want to get into this business or we want to sell this product. And you start with the business objectives and you work your way through a cycle of coastal controls or management system. And you start at the beginning and at the end, you report on what you did. That's how you do on financial reporting. What's our income statement for this year? This whole ESG thing has started at the other end. The demand has been for the reporting before companies have had processes and systems and controls to report on what they're doing. So it's been a chaotic development in the last 20 years, really. But financial reporting involves things that an organization can control. You can control your sales. You know what you control. ESG involves more control and influence. So what are you doing about the distribution of your product? What are you doing about how your product is disposed of? How are you managing your supply chain? 
the whole point of having suppliers is you don't want to control that. Well, now you're expected to have controls over something you don't control. That's kind of a challenge. And that attribute, I think, comes into play that customers are imposing requirements on product conformity, on wages used in your own product, at your supply chain, on emissions, carbon emissions inventory from transportation from the point of origin to your factories, if you have a factory. And so now there's, to meet the expectations of the customer, you have to look in-house at your own organization, and you also have to look up your supply chain and get data from them. And the expectation is also that you influence them to be more environmentally friendly, to be more diverse in their workforce. All the ESG topics that we hear about, organizations are expected to learn from their supply chain in order to support their sales. So you're kind of at both ends of that value chain in an organization. And I'm not sure 20, 25 years ago, those parts of the organization talk to each other as much as they have to talk to each other now. So how does ESG reporting become conflated? I hear people talk about an ESG report or ESG reporting as though it is one thing. And it's really not one thing. The investors have their own way of looking at these things. There's, you know, SASB, as I mentioned, now part of ISSB or within ISSB. There's the Task Force for Climate Change-Related Financial Disclosures that kind of took all things climate-related and look at enterprise risk. But there's also reporting to these customers. There's reporting to governments. The UK Modern Slavery Act requires a, a, a report on that particular topic to the UK government. The EU is now in the midst of the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, where companies have to report on a full suite of things that they do, not just the ones that are financially material, the way SASB had developed their model. And there's reportings to different industry groups. If you're in the CDP, has their own car formerly carbon disclosure project. They have their own suite of questions. And now there are all these Analyst agencies as part of the ecosystem, um, Ecovatus is one, Sustainalytics is one. There are any number of analysts that expect performance in certain parameters. If you, some companies are a certified B Corporation, they have their own protocol and list of topics on what it takes to become a B Corporation. They all may go back to the same topics, let's say employee diversity, water use, water recycling, commitment to energy, but they're all a little different. So if you want to be successful in communications to any of those channels, in my view, you have to have reporting and content that is fit for purpose. It all comes back and originates in many of the same places. Sometimes the scope is different. The reporting period is different. In working with a client, for example, on a greenhouse gas emissions inventory for their whole company, one customer wants to know the inventory from the facilities where we buy from. And there's another stakeholder wants, we want the carbon emissions inventory in this state. Another one is we want it by the equity share. Another request comes, we want by the operational control. Another one wants a different baseline year. So you have a lot of the same data but to meet these different requests, you have to be able to slice and dice it several different ways in order to meet the needs of those stakeholders. And those stakeholders have power, including, will we be your customer? Will we provide you with capital and a working line of credit? So there's strings that come with all of these information requests. And 
the reports are all different. Let me change the focus just a little bit because about okay. 40% of the listener base are corporate compliance officers. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask, what role do you see, if any, for a corporate compliance function, a CCO, or a compliance professional in a corporate ESG program? That's a great question. And I think it's a great opportunity for compliance professionals. My experience is they may be a little behind, and maybe that's because they don't know where to start. They may not have the right remit, let's say, from boards or senior management, because, well, we're waiting for the rule. We're waiting for SEC. Everybody's kind of waiting for that thing that will not allow them to wait any longer. But in the meantime, these compliance obligations are being imposed all over the place. And I think that to the point you mentioned earlier about all these different functions have taken on the ownership of these things in a way that's not always coordinated, not always consistent with a business strategy. And with all the responsibilities so disaggregated, it may not be all that efficient or effective. So I think there's a terrific role for a corporate compliance professional to play. First, just learn what the requirements are and learn who in the organization is the owner of these things. I haven't really seen many good compliance rosters for ESG compliance requirements, or let's call it the RACI matrix. We see the who is responsible, who has authority, who do we communicate with about all these things. That's a very good way to establish a baseline and evaluate the effectiveness and efficiency of all these requirements. And my experience is that When a compliance group or a cross-functional team or legal or whoever leads that kind of effort starts into that kind of effort, they're really surprised at how much is going on and how much of it actually is compliance as may be committed to not just by law and regulation, but to meet a certification standard. We agreed to get an ISO certification for a particular customer that comes with a whole suite of requirements. And if you don't do it, you lose the customer. It's a condition of the contract. I see that in the U.S. The Federal Acquisition Regulation has a question, does your company publish a greenhouse gas emissions inventory? Yes, no. And if it's public, please provide the link. Well, why the federal government? So if you say yes, you'd better have it. And for as long as that contract is in force, that link needs to work. Otherwise, you know, you can be found out. Sort of bring it home, Tom, that The compliance professional can just learn what a lot of the requirements are, take a leadership role. If they're not at the table the way they think they should be at the table, then just pull up a chair and sit down. Make your own case for why the compliance function has such an important role in ESG. It's not about marketing, it's compliance. Certainly music to my ears. We recently had a jury convict the former head of Nicola Electric Mm. Truck Company, Mm. Trevor Milton, for fraud. Some people said this was a harbinger of perhaps more criminal indictments in the Mm. ESG space. I saw this as just old-fashioned fraud, Mm -hmm. saying you could do something you couldn't. What's your opinion? Or is it something different? Well, when was it back at Emron and WorldCom? We thought, well, that's the fraud to end all frauds, but we keep seeing fraud, don't we? Is this the environmental fraud that will end all environmental frauds? No, I think we'll see more. Maybe this just is the signal if people are going to commit fraud, they have to get more creative and how they do it. But what I do think, I like to see things like this hit the headlines because it reminds people that, let's say, ESG fraud is a thing. I wrote an article for 
Bloomberg BNA on environmental fraud, the first one they published back in 2017. I was fortunate to be in-house at a big four firm when Sarbanes-Oxley hit, working both internal audit and external audit. And when the rules came out and when COSO came out and the IIA revised their professional practices framework, we were obliged to test for fraud. And so I've been brainstorming and testing for fraud for almost 20 years, which is kind of a lot. But what I hope will happen out of this COLA fraud and judgment is that it reminds compliance professionals and it reminds auditors, both third line at internal audit and second line, those who are auditing environmental and safety and supply chain and all those things, that fraud is a possibility and is part of their processes. Everyone should try to design controls to design procedures to prevent fraud. And if you're in the audit business, you should work on procedures to detect fraud. In in my view, a lot of things we hear the term greenwash bandied about now a lot. Well, a lot of things greenwash in some cases is just a, a soft way of saying fraud. If you are saying things or doing things by omission or commission that are intentional and that are deceitful, that cannot be supported, and you gain some advantage over another party, it's done at the expense of another, I call that fraud. That can be inclusion in an ESG fund at the expense of a competitor. It can be getting a government contract because you scored higher on certain things where you lied. It can be any of a number of things. There are a lot of incentives in this ESG space, and they don't all involve tons of money. And they're not all obvious, but I call it fraud. We spoke a little bit earlier about you counseling boards on their role and obligation, but I wanted to expand on that. What do you see the role of the board as in a corporate ESG program and how do you counsel them to fulfill that role? Well, I do think that the board needs to be involved in a way that's appropriate to their sector and where they want to do with the organization. I've seen a lot written about the structure of the board. Does it belong in the audit committee? Does it belong in the risk committee? Does it need to have a separate committee? And maybe the answer is all of the above, that the audit committee is already looking for everything that's submitted to the SEC. So ESG is working its way into that. So maybe that's their slice. ESG poses any number of risks. So maybe there's some competence that needs to be built at the risk committee. It's kind of all hands on deck thing to expand your competence and expand your viewpoints and your perspectives in areas where you're already working. Begin with what you've got. If the board needs to be restructured or an additional committee or an additional cross-functional steering committee for this, then make the most of that, determine its objectives and if it's permanent or if it's going to sunset at a certain time. So I think, one, the structure is one thing, but then I think the board needs, personally, I think the board needs to challenge and demand more from management and needs to leverage internal audit as an independent resource to go really do some digging. In my view, internal audit should be at the board leading many of these discussions, and I think everybody's kind of waiting for everybody else to take the first step. The board can take the first step and challenge and make it clear that they expect management and they expect internal audit to raise their game. I think another thing the board can do is to pay attention to their auditors and the other auditors, the big four. The big four is just going gangbusters in terms of of advocacy on this topic, in terms of, for example, in the SEC rule attestation, 
of the greenhouse gas emissions inventory, that's just remarkable in my book. So if the big four is your financial auditor is coming in, listening to one, they have staffed up by a factor of 8x in their ESG practice within the last year. They're staffing up because they expect to do this work for their audit clients. So the board has a role in that. What are the discussions you're hearing from big four? And then how are you challenging the company to be prepared for this? In my experience and observation, the companies are not keeping up. Well, who should be driving that? The board has oversight responsibility. So crack the whip a little. Doug, unfortunately, we're getting the near the end of our time. Okay. But before we end, I have a special bonus question. Okay. Could you give us a couple of highlights for you personally from your work on the BW monitorship? No, I really can't. That was all done under attorney and restricted and non-disclosure for the Department of Justice. I will say that in the course of a, a couple of years, I learned that it's really hard to design and build a car. I appreciate everything that goes into that. They had a three-year term. They got out of it in three years. There was an option to extend and the monitor saw fit to let Volkswagen go their way. I saw a lot of good hard work. I saw a lot of commitment. And other than that, I can't really comment. Okay. Well, before we leave, uh, if anyone wanted any more information on yourself, your services, mm -hmm. or really any of the topics we've touched on today, uh, what would be the best way for them to find out more? I put a lot of effort into my website, douglasheileman.com. There's a lot of content there with the Contact Us feature. There's a link to a YouTube page where I have a 50-minute session on the SEC proposed climate disclosure rule that the IAA local chapter here had me do and allowed me to post that. So if you hear a lot about that rule and you really want to know what it consists of in 50 minutes, you'll know as much as just about anybody you talk to. And just stay tuned. Well, Doug, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. This has been a highly informative recording, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. It was my privilege. I appreciate it.